Section 20 of The Critique of Dogmatic Theology and Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Leo Weiner. Chapter 13, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That is, lie before God and we will not excommunicate you, but seek the truth and dare not to agree with us and we will curse you. The church in the sense in which the theology takes it consists in all the believers in Christ, and this church separates the heretics and excommunicates them. 169. The aim of the church is the sanctification of sinners. The church is ordained and therefore obliged a. to preserve the precious pledge of the saving faith and to disseminate the teaching of that faith among the nations b. to keep and use for the good of men the divine mysteries and sacraments in general c. to preserve its government as established by God and to make use of it in conformity with the intention of the Lord. The church is understood as all those who believe in Christ, and yet it speaks of the church as having to perform sacraments and govern. It is evident that all the believers are not able to perform the sacraments and rule themselves, and so the theology by the word church understands something different, which it puts in the place of the first definition of the church. Further on, it says, 170. Outside the church there is no salvation, and the proof is given that it is necessary to belong to the church. This is asserted in the following way. 1. The faith in Jesus Christ who reconciled us with God. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And even before that, that the Savior said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. But the true teaching of Christ and about Christ is preserved and preached only in his church and by his church, without which there cannot be a true faith. Thus the faith in Christ is no longer merely the definition of the church, but it turns out that in the place of the belief in Christ is put the belief in the church. 2. The participation in the holy sacraments, whereby are given unto us all divine powers that pertain unto life and godliness. And 3. Finally, the last, a good, godly life. The proofs for all that. Outside the church there is no hearing, no comprehension of the word of God. There is no true divine worship. Christ is not found. The Holy Ghost is not communicated. The death of the Savior does not furnish salvation. There is not the feast of the body of Christ. There is no faithful prayer. There can be no works of salvation, nor true martyrdom, nor exalted virginity and purity, nor fasting salutary for the soul, nor the benevolence of God. 2. In the church, on the contrary, there is the benevolence and grace of God. In the church abides the triune God. In the church is the knowledge of truth, the knowledge of God and of Christ, and a superabundance of spiritual benefits. In the church are the true saving dogmas, the true faith is derived from the apostles, true love and the straight path of life. Everything has been said about the church that the theology has to say. It was said that it was founded by Christ, it was determined who belonged to it and who not. Its aims and means have been mentioned. It was said that it is necessary to belong to it in order to obtain salvation, but the church itself has not yet been defined. All that was said was that its meaning is all the believers in Christ, but with the provision that the church is comprised by those who believe in Christ precisely as the church teaches them to believe in him. That is, the meaning of the church is now modified to mean all those who believe in the church. But what this church itself is, which sanctifies men and establishes dogmas, has not yet been determined. Only in the 2D division, in Article 171, this mysterious church at last gets not a definition but a description from which, at last, we can deduce its definition, which corresponds to its activities, the sanctification and establishment of dogmas. 171. Having determined the extent of his church, having pointed out to it its aim, 
and having given it the proper means for the attainment of that aim, the Lord Jesus gave it at the same time a definite structure by which the attainment of that aim is secured and made easy. The organization of the church consists in this. A. According to its composition, it is divided into two essential parts, the congregation and the divinely established hierarchy, which is placed in a certain relation to each other. B. The hierarchy is subdivided into its three essential degrees, which are distinct from each other and are connected among themselves. C. The congregation and the hierarchy are subject to the supreme judgment of the councils. And D. Last, the whole harmonious body of the church, which is formed from so many different and wisely appointed members, has its only head in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who vivifies it with his Holy Ghost. Only now do we at last get a definition of what the church is which has been talked about all the time, the same that is to sanctify men, the same that has uttered all the dogmas which have been expounded heretofore. I do not yet protest against this, that the establishment of the church which has determined all the dogmas is one and holy and has Christ for its head, and that it is not possible to find salvation outside it. But I should like first the subject uttered and then the predicate. I should like first to know what they are talking about that is holy and one and has Christ for its head, and then only that it is holy and so forth. But in the exposition of the theology, the reverse order has been observed. All the time it spoke of the unity, holiness, infallibility of the church and expounded its teachings, and only now it says what it is. Only now it becomes clear from Article 171 what that church is which sanctifies men through sacraments, and which, amidst false dogmas, establishes them that are true. It says that the church is divided into a hierarchy and the congregation. The hierarchy sanctifies and teaches. The flock is sanctified, ruled, and taught by the hierarchy. It must obey. Consequently, it is only the hierarchy that sanctifies and establishes dogmas, and so the hierarchy alone answers that definition of the church, from which results its activity of the sanctification and the establishment of the dogmas, and so the hierarchy alone is holy and infallible, and only the hierarchy answers completely to that which has all the time been mentioned under the name of the church. In Article 173, it says that the pastors must teach the flock, must perform the sacraments for it, and must govern it, and that the flock must obey. St. Gregory the Divine says, As in the body some parts govern and, as it were, preside, while other parts are under their rule and dominion, even so is it in the churches. God has decreed that some, for whom this is more useful, should by word and deed be directed to the performance of their duties, should remain herded and under rule, while others, standing above the rest in virtue and nearness to God, should be pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the church, and should have the same relation to others that the soul has to the body, and the mind to the soul so that one and the other, defective in the superabundant being, like the members of the body, united and joined into one composition, bound and coupled with the Spirit, may represent one body, perfect and truly worthy of Christ our head. For that reason, the societies of the Christians, who of their own will departed from the obedience of the bishop and the presbyters, were regarded by the ancient teachers of the church as unworthy of the name of the church, and were called heretical, a rabble of apostates, evil-thinking, harmful, and so forth. The church, the one upon which the whole teaching is based, is the hierarchy. The theology before that expounded about the one church, the kingdom of grace, the body of Christ, the church of the living and the dead and the angels, then of all those who believed in Christ, then by degrees it added to this first definition another concept, then at last the hierarchy is substituted for that church. The theology knows very well that according to its conception, the church is nothing but the hierarchy, and sometimes it says so, as in the introduction to the dogmatic theology as in the expressions of the Eastern Patriarchs, as always in the expressions of the Catholic Church, 
but the theology has at the same time to confirm its definition that the church is an assembly of all the believers, and so it does not like to say directly that the church is the hierarchy. The theology knows that the essence of the matter is the infallibility and sacredness of the hierarchy, and so it has to prove first that the hierarchy was established by Christ, and that the theology is an exposition of all the dogmas as confirmed by that same hierarchy. All that is necessary is to prove that the hereditary hierarchy was established by Christ, and that we are the inheritors of this hierarchy, and then, no matter how you may understand it, the Church, the essence of the Church, as the keeper of truth, will be nothing but hierarchs. For that reason, the theology uses all its efforts to prove the impossible, namely that Christ established the hierarchy, and a hereditary one at that, and that our hierarchy is the legitimate heir, and that such and such a hierarchy, not ours, is illegitimate. 172. The flock and the divinely established hierarchy with their mutual relations. I. It is not difficult to show, in spite of the opinion of certain evil-thinking men, that the division of the church into the two above-mentioned classes has its origin with the Savior himself. Unquestionably, the Lord himself founded in his church a special order of men who formed the hierarchy, and empowered those men, and only those, to make use of those means which he gave the church for its purposes. That is, he empowered them to be teachers, ministers of the sacraments, and spiritual guides, and in no way left it indiscriminately to all the believers, having, on the contrary, enjoined them to obey the pastors. The Protestants, who do not acknowledge that Christ established in the Church a special priesthood or hierarchy, affirm that all believers, by force of the sacrament of the baptism, are equally priests of the Most High God, but as it is impossible for all to perform the duties of the priesthood, the believers choose from their own midst special men as their representatives, whom they clothe in the rites of priesthood. In the above quotation, it says that a large part of Christendom, the Protestants, do not recognize the hierarchy. This proof is very important, for the whole teaching of the Church has been reduced to the doctrine about the hierarchy. It turns out that Christians who are not worse or more stupid than we directly deny according to Scripture what we assert, that is, the hierarchy. Here is the way the theology proves the establishment of the hierarchy by God. I cite the following places from the theology, which are supposed to prove the establishment of the hierarchy by Christ. I quote every one of them, not in order to refute them, for anyone who reads them will see how useless that is, but in order to present all the proofs of the Church in favor of the hierarchy. 1. As we read the Gospel, which contains in itself the history of the life and words of our Savior, we see a. that he chose from among his followers twelve disciples whom he called apostles. And when it was day, says St. Luke, he called upon him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. And so he said to them, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. That is the first proof. Christ chose twelve apostles. Apostle means messenger in Greek, so it says that Christ chose twelve messengers. If he had chosen seventeen, he would have sent seventeen messengers. The theology adduces this as proof that the hierarchy was established by Christ. To that are added the words, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. These words were said in the chapter of the farewell speech, where Christ spoke of his love for his disciples, and have nothing in common with the passage in connection with which they are quoted, and still less with the establishment of the hierarchy. Second proof. B. That to them alone he gave the command and the power to teach all the nations, to perform the holy sacraments for them, and to direct all believers to salvation. The verses are not cited. Here they are. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. 
The theology gives only the number of the verses, but does not quote the passages themselves, knowing that the verses do not confirm the statement that Christ gave to anyone a special right to teach the nations. There is nothing in there about the power and nothing about the sacraments. Something is said about baptizing, but it does not say that the breaking of the bread is a sacrament, or that these actions are left in charge of the hierarchy. One cannot help observing the strange phenomenon that continually exactly the same obscure texts are chosen to prove all kinds of theses. Such are the texts Matt 28.19, Luke 22.19, John 20.23, 20, and several others. These texts are repeated a hundred times. On them is based the Trinity, the Divinity of Christ, and the Redemption and the Sacraments in the Hierarchy. That is all about the second proof. Third proof, C, that he transferred the power to the Holy Apostles just as he received it from the Father. All power is given unto me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed unto them, and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. In order to confirm the power which is supposed to be transferred, the texts are tampered with here. The text is quoted as, All power is given unto me, dot dot dot, go ye, and so forth. The real text reads like this, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, period. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations. Considering the period, it cannot be said that he gave the power, but with the several dots and by omitting in heaven, which cannot refer to the disciples, it is possible to interpret it as he gave the power to the disciples. The text from John does not say anything about the hierarchy or about the power. All it says is that Christ gave the Holy Ghost to his disciples and commanded them to teach men, that is, to deliver them from sin, as it is correctly translated. But even if it be translated by remit the sins, the hierarchy does not in any way result from the remission of sins. Fourth proof, D, that to these twelve he immediately added seventy definite disciples whom he sent out on the same great work. The fact that Christ sent out at first twelve messengers and then seventy more men, whom he ordered like pilgrims without a supply of clothing, without money, to visit the cities and villages, is regarded as proof that the ruling hierarchy of the present day derives its origin by heredity from Christ. Those are all the proofs that Christ himself established the hierarchy. Everything that could possibly be adduced has been adduced. In the opinion of the theology, the quotations with their tampered text confirm the establishment of the hierarchy. No other proofs could be found. After that follow proofs that later this power was transferred from the apostles to the fathers of the church, and then to the hierarchy which came after them. This is the way the transmission is proved. e. That transmitting his heavenly message to the twelve disciples, he wanted it to pass from them directly to their successors, and from these passing from generation to generation, to be kept in the world to the end of the world itself. For when he said to the apostles, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature, he immediately added, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Consequently, he, in person of the apostles, sent out for the same work and encouraged by his presence all their future successors, and in the literal sense gave the church not only apostles, prophets, and evangelists, but also pastors and teachers. End of section 20